There are some names in the history of American cinema that have lasted through the generations. Not just actors, directors, and writers who brought early Hollywood to life, but the producers as well. In the first half of the 20th century, when merely the name of Hollywood producers could make or break the profit of a film, production companies were at war with one another. Actors and directors signed to extended exclusive contracts with producers that meant they could only make movies with that specific company. That era, notably the 20s, 30s, and 40s, featured legends that launched production companies that still bear their names. For example, Louis B. Mayer is the second M in MGM. Jack and Sam Warner brought synchronized dialogue to film, effectively ending the silent era and launching Warner Brothers into the history books. But some figures weren't loyal to just one company and found themselves learning as they traveled around the industry, making allies and enemies as they went. One such figure was David O. Selznick. Selznick was a first-generation American, son of Lithuanian immigrants. After attending Columbia in New York, he went on to work in the picture industry immediately. At the age of 24, he packed up and moved west to Hollywood. He got a job at MGM where he worked in story editing for two years until he left and moved to Paramount. He spent three years there and then popped over to RKO. Now, RKO was kind of an underdog of this era. As other studios made huge impacts through the 20s, RKO was just coming into existence after combining a few smaller companies into one monster film company. RKO needed to make an impact if they were to stand up to the big kids. They gambled on a young producer named David O. Selznick, making him the head of production at just the age of 29. It's the kind of thing that only happens in 30s Hollywood, but the gamble paid off. Selznick had great vision and clearly knew what film audiences were looking for. He produced dozens of films and launched the careers of filmmakers and actors that have left huge marks on film history. He gave Katherine Hepburn her first film role, a career that spanned 60 years and four Academy Award wins. He also produced the very first King Kong film, actually adding the word King to the original title, which was just simply Kong. After two years of success, Selznick kept moving, signing a new contract with MGM and becoming a vice president there. While working at MGM, he produced a pair of Charles Dickens adaptations and produced Fred Astaire's first film appearance. But it wasn't enough for Selznick. He had made so much money for other people that Selznick realized he could bring his own skills to the table and produce movies without help from a larger company. He could be the production company himself. So he formed Selznick International Pictures, partnered with United Artists for distribution, and went on to essentially rewrite Hollywood history. He produced the first version of A Star is Born, starring Janet Gaynor and Frederick March. He produced a movie called Intermezzo, which brought Ingrid Bergman to American screens only a few short years before Casablanca made her an icon. In 1939, his former employer, MGM, produced The Wizard of Oz. Selznick in 1939, well, he produced Gone with the Wind. Both were directed by Victor Fleming. Both films would go on to revolutionize the way Hollywood worked through the 40s. His last movie produced in this phase of his life was Rebecca, directed by Alfred Hitchcock and starring the incredible Laurence Olivier and Joan Fontaine. He would go on to less successful business ventures after this, but Selznick had made his mark. Hollywood history would never be the same. But Selznick didn't entirely make it here of his own accord. All of the success he would have began because he got that very first job when he was 24. 
How did he get that job? Well, his father had some connections. His father, Louis Selznick, was a film producer himself, and when his career started to reach a dead end in the 20s, Louis looked for fresh opportunities. Somehow, some way, he wound up here in the Sunshine State. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, Picture City, Florida, a town with big dreams that never came to be. Hollywood has always left its mark on the Sunshine State, whether that be in production or featuring us in its stories, but the land boom of the 1920s provided a new possibility and new disasters in equal amount. How did Hollywood come to Florida in the first place, and how did it all fall apart? Before we get into that, I want to tell you about our sponsor this week. This episode of Wait 5 Minutes is sponsored by A Trombo Creative. A Trombo Creative is owned and operated by my dear friend of over a decade, Annie. Annie has been designing and costuming professionally for six years and even did costumes for yours truly throughout my years in theater. Through close collaboration, cohesive design, and hands-on fittings, together you and Annie can create the perfect costume for your production, cosplay, special event, or photo shoot. She turns your ideas and inspirations into a wearable reality. You can check out more of her work on Instagram at atrombo.creative, and you can book your appointment at her website, atrombocreative.com. Annie has been working on some costumes for Halloween coming up right now. I'm very excited about the things she is making. Go check out her Instagram, atrombo.creative. There are links to both in the description of this episode. Thank you to Atrombo Creative for sponsoring this episode and season of Wait 5 Minutes. All right, on with the show. Before we get into it, let's talk about the land boom of Florida in the 1920s, because everything was changing at that time. When 1920 rolled around, mechanisms were clicking into place that would echo for a century of Florida history. The economy in the country was surging, meaning it was dirt cheap for land speculators to buy up chunks of land. Speculators would then take the land they bought for fractions of pennies and sell them to developers for massive price tags, leading to the speculators making loads of profit. The people behind the money weren't themselves Floridians oftentimes, but they'd send folks on foot to sell land on the ground, taking in down payments for those interested in purchasing. This was great for Florida's economy at the time, with land coming and going, money changing hands at a rapid pace, and new development sweeping down the peninsula. And the government was helping it grow. Quote, laws were also written to help support the land boom. In order to get people to come to Florida and invest in real estate, the Florida legislature passed laws that prohibited state income and inheritance taxes. End quote. This meant that the government was ensuring that as much money as possible could be passed between buyers and sellers concerning land. Capitalizing on the opportunities before them, towns and businesses invested in turning their homes into tourism destinations, launching massive resorts and beach towns, throwing up attractions to bring people from all over to Florida shores. Miami especially was booming to an insane degree. It's important to note, all booms eventually bust. That's how it goes. And the Florida land boom went bust in a big, big way. 
but let's start in the happy days first. I stumbled upon one town that still bore the scars of one of those land boom bubble bursts. In Martin County, a row of lampposts stands abandoned just along A1A, concrete monuments to left-behind dreams. These lampposts are essentially the last remnant of one such attempt to turn Florida into Hollywood East. In Hobe Sound, where we visited earlier this year to chat with Florida Classics Library, there are these concrete lampposts. They're still standing. Some streets still bear the name of the project. Streets like Venus Street, Adonis Street. That's because in the 1920s, Hobe Sound was home to Hollywood's new biggest plan, Olympia. I have two primary sources in this story that I want to credit up front so you can check out more of their work. I got in touch with a few historians in the area who sent along some of their research into this era of history. One is an article called A Brief History of the One and Only Hobe Sound by Greg and Alice Luckhart. The other source is from A Treasure We Call Home by Rick Crary, who sent along the copy of his chapter, The Lost Magic of Picture City. There's links to both in the episode description. I'd like to give a big thank you to all of them for their help. Louis Selznick, the father of David O. Selznick, was now in his mid-50s. He was looking for a new place to expand on filmmaking, and so he found the state of Florida. Selznick was born in what is now Lithuania, moved to America as a young man, and became a jeweler. Soon he started producing small films on the East Coast in New York, becoming successful enough to own, quote, a 17-room apartment on Park Avenue, end quote. He had spent the 1910s ruling East Coast filmmaking and moved to Hollywood in 1920 only for his opportunities to begin to falter. His businesses, frankly, had run dry, and in the heart of the land boom, with land available, Selznick and his kids, including David, came down to Florida in search of a new beginning. Selznick had lost a bit of the steam that he had throughout the 1910s and was looking for a new chance, something new and exciting, which is how he came to Jacksonville. In Jacksonville, in the summer of 1925, Selznick made a big promise to the press, saying he would bring, quote, the biggest studio in the world in Florida, end quote. Hollywood had obviously become a city dedicated to the cinema industry with loads of companies and artists, but Selznick wasn't talking about recreating Hollywood. Selznick was talking about building a city just for his company to make movies in the silent era. Selznick wanted to buy up as much land as he could and just turn it into a movie town with producers and creators galore. The only question he had to answer was, where? The state was showing up to find a place for Selznick's new industry with towns along the East Coast trying to prove they could be the right spot, but there was already somewhere waiting for someone just like Selznick to come along. It was called Olympia, and it was situated in parts of Hobe Sound and Jupiter. It was what was called a platted project, as it had been lots of land purchased for one specific purpose by one specific person. A man named Charles Apfel was a financer who tried to turn Olympia into a subdivision, but with all the land boom options available, Apfel was not seeing the financial returns he was waiting for. Both men needed a break with their businesses, and maybe they could solve each other's ails. Selznick needed space, and Apfel needed an occupant. It was a match made in heaven. 
Using Olympia and some more cheaply bought land, Selznick settled in on southeast Florida for his new movie town, and he called it Picture City. And Selznick wasn't flying blind or without supports. No, the state government was throwing all of their influence behind this project. Just as the Florida government essentially ensured that the land boom would continue to blossom, so too did the Florida government bring as much support as they could to this project, including publicly pushing for Picture City to grow. One figure, of course, had a personal interest. The governor had just named the county around Picture City after himself. His name was John Wellborn Martin. Born in Marion County and one-time mayor of Jacksonville starting at age 32, John Wellborn Martin was a force of Florida politics in the 1910s and 20s. He served as Jacksonville's governor for six years. In that time, as Rick Crary points out in his book, John Martin watched as filmmaking tried to leave a mark actually in Jacksonville. Silent Film had found a small foothold in Jacksonville in the 1910s, but Mayor John Martin, backed by his citizens, believed that the movie industry was too much fervor and chaos in their town, and promptly pushed for Hollywood to head out, which they soon did. Now Martin had become the governor, befriended a film mogul that lived in the state, and together they were, quote, business partners in a brand new venture controlling the South's largest hotel chain, end quote. So the governor had an economic interest in Hollywood returning to Florida, and of course a personal one. In 1925, while he was governor, parts of St. Lucie and Palm Beach counties split and formed a new county, Martin County, named after him. Picture City was within Martin County, and the governor wanted his namesake to become the most important county in the state. The government was invested, land speculators were invested, and the state was hungry for what Picture City could do for the land boom. If it worked, then it would just grow and grow, more than it already had. Perhaps Hollywood would finally make the move to the Sunshine State. The pedal was placed firmly to the metal. Quote, the first week after the new enterprise was announced, the syndicate made $1.8 million worth of property sales. End quote. It was late summer, turning to fall, just as it is now, and Selznick was throwing everything into creating Picture City. The plan was for a city 12 by 5 miles in size, which is fairly large, especially when Hobe Sound itself today is about five square miles total. This was a big city they were talking about building, a city from scratch. This wasn't going to be a little spot on the map. This was going to be a location with its own train stations and banks. Apparently, developers were planning on building a casino. An architect wandered the land, planning the city and the movie studio, and of course, those lampposts that still stand on A1A were put up. Selznick, according to reports, was living the high life in Palm Beach hotels while his employees poured all their energy into bringing this town to life. There were lots available for those excitable land speculators who brought even more cash into this venture. If the land boom was a bubble bound to burst, Picture City was one of its most literal expressions. The dreams were big, and the purchases were even bigger. There was bound to be one wrench in the gears or several. It started with a shortage of supplies. Right as Picture City was genuinely starting construction on houses within the city, a backup throughout the entirety of Florida's east coast sent shockwaves down the state. 
Construction materials had been flowing in for years since the start of the boom, lumber in particular coming to Florida in extreme numbers. But Florida hadn't built strong enough infrastructure to support all that movement of material. The train lines were extensive, but there was only so much you could do. They were starting to be bogged up. Roads and automobiles were still limited, and boats were imperfect. The state hadn't adjusted to the density of people coming in, so the system wasn't in place to support all the things that human beings need to survive alongside the tons and tons of construction materials coming in. Backups in Jacksonville specifically led to construction halting as trains and roads focused on bringing food, water, and medicine to city centers throughout the state. The Florida East Coast Railroad had to put an embargo to help protect the people that needed what they needed. Building halted everywhere as news spread that the money was slowing down. Out-of-state investors saw the problems building up and by the time 1926 hit, the projects had run out of gas. Picture City died. Not with a bang, but a whimper, slipping out of headlines, out of conversations, and out of mind. Louis Selznick moved to California with his son, whose career would launch to new heights shortly after Louis passed away in 1933. The land that was once Picture City returned to being Hobe Sound, and the lampposts stayed unlit for the century that followed. I'm really interested in this story for a lot of reasons, but one of the things that really kind of sticks to me is stories, especially historical stories, have ways of fitting an interesting structure. You know, things happen, a big event occurs, and then an event comes to its conclusion. A narrative has its interesting end, but the land boom is kind of one of those things where it all just seemed like it was going great until one day it wasn't. There wasn't the stock market crash like there was a couple years later. There wasn't any one thing that happened. The backup happened in Jacksonville, and then what always happens happens. A boom busted, and everyone just left. I talk a lot about how the 1894 and 1895 great freezes of the citrus industry left a huge impact on the state. It literally left towns in devastation. It, it was a huge economic collapse for Florida. But that was a specific event that ended a period of Florida history. This was not a specific event. There was no big major thing that occurred. It all just fell apart. There was too much going on and the state just couldn't handle it. We've discussed it before, but Florida felt the impacts of the oncoming Great Depression before it actually hit the rest of the country. The extravagance of the 20s led to a collapse of the market nationwide, but Florida was feeling it earlier thanks to the land boom. Then, a hurricane hit Miami hard in 1926, a Category 4. The damage was catastrophic, indescribable damage ripping across the state. Experts have said that if that hurricane hit Miami in the modern day, it would have led to billions of dollars in damage. That's how severe this hurricane was. It affected mostly South Florida, which was the hub of the land boom. That was over now. The final nail in the coffin. Out-of-state investors pulled out their cash, fled the state, and left local banks to slip into bankruptcy. Developments around the state stopped dead and sat abandoned if they hadn't been destroyed by the hurricane already. It's noted that South Florida slipped into such dire straits economically that they didn't recover for over a decade. The Great Depression would hit the United States in total in 1929, but Florida was already there. We talk about Florida being a place of big dreams a lot, about people with interesting ideas coming to us and, and pouring all of their money into something that they believe in, whether it be a good thing or a bad thing. 
Picture City is a story I hadn't really heard much of before, and it's actually kind of one in a long series of attempts to make Florida a hub of Hollywood filmmaking. And right now in Florida, we are having an amazing surge of people wanting to tell stories about our state. And it means a lot to me. It means a lot to my friends, to residents. But it's not the first time that Florida has tried to be that community. Maybe we're just lucky nowadays. Maybe our heart is in a better place, but part of me wonders what could have happened if Picture City had come to be. What if there was another major filmmaking location, not just New York, which has its own history, and not just LA, which is the hub of American cinema, but Florida. What could have been? I don't know if Louis Selznick was thinking like that. I think he was just looking for a place where he could buy cheap land and bring his ideas to life, but it's a little heartbreaking for the Floridians of the 20s to know how bad it got for them. It was tough times and all I could think of is maybe that could have been the one thing to survive the land boom. That could have been the industry that survived, but it didn't. Still, at least the lampposts are standing today. It's nice to know that everything didn't totally disappear from that big dream all those years ago. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. If you're brand new to the show, or even if this is your first episode, welcome. There are some incredible stories waiting in the back catalog for you. I talked about the 1920s in Florida a lot, and there are some really wonderful stories. For example, the story of Greyhound Racing, how it came to prominence in the 20s and how it faded away. And of course, we talked about the Rum Runners earlier this season, which was such a fun story. I've included to links to both of those in the episode description. Go check those out. Season 7 of Wait 5 Minutes is brought to you by A Trombo Creative. Turn your ideas and inspirations into a wearable reality. Go book your appointment at atrombocreative.com. And thank you again to A Trombo Creative for sponsoring this episode and season of Wait 5 Minutes. If you're looking for more Wait 5 Minutes, head to the website wfmpod.com for transcripts of current episodes, additional photographs related to stories and photos from trips around the state. I haven't gotten to update the website in the past couple of weeks, but I will be adding transcripts from the latter half of this season very soon so you can go and check out more photographs and stories related to these stories. Until then, head to WFMPod.com and check out the back catalog from last season and the first half of this season. You can now pick up Wait 5 Minutes merchandise at Cast and Clay on Etsy. Cast and Clay is run by one of my best friends, Sophie Aparicio, who designed each of these stickers alongside the rest of their catalog. We've got a Drink More Water sticker using a photograph from our friend Lauren Nix, a Wait 5 Minutes sticker in the shape of Florida, and a sticker featuring the show subtitle about Florida by a Floridian in a vintage citrus crate style. Grab them individually or as a set of three at Cast and Clay on Etsy. Head to the link in the description to pick up your WFM merch now. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review. It helps the show become more visible, and it means a lot to me. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com, and you can follow my personal account on Twitter at WFMNick. I look forward to hearing from you. 
I'd like to give a very special thank you again to the folks who helped me in the research this week. They sent along articles that were invaluable in the research here. Go read Greg and Alice Luckhart's article about Hope Sound and pick up a copy of A Treasure We Call Home by Rick Crary, a wonderful book about the history of the Treasure Coast in Florida, an area of Florida that I don't think gets enough credit for how interesting its history is. There's links to both the article and the book in the episode description. Go check them out and thank you to them. All the music in this episode was originally composed. All right, next week is the season finale. I've got a big announcement to tell you in that episode, a couple big announcements actually, but next week, in honor of the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World opening here in Orlando, I wanted to tell you about a unique part of that story. One of Walt Disney's biggest interests was building a city here. We've talked about it a little before, and it certainly bears some resemblance to the story of Picture City, but Walt got close, pretty close, and his ideas for the future were grandiose, to say the least. It's going to be an amazing episode, a huge story that spans decades. I cannot wait for you to hear it, so come back next Monday for the season finale, the story of Epcot. Until then... I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Please get vaccinated. And of course, drink more water. I'll see you next Monday for the season finale. Take care of yourself.